chapter 10, starting in verse 6, the people of Israel again, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Oh, well, the scripture reading this morning was from the book of Judges. We're continuing in our series in the book of Judges. And sometimes people have asked, Dave, why do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God and not just a book written by man? And I say the book of Judges is one of the reasons for it. Because of this book, the Bible were written by men, written by people who were trying to make themselves look good, you would not include the book of Judges. If you were recounting your history as a people, there are certain sections of your history that you would try and spin or cover over, and yet God's Word, being God's Word, is a full display of the history of God's people because it's a full display to us, as we're going to see this morning, of how God interacts with his, his people. Nothing is kept hidden in this book. In chapters 10 and chapters 11, where we're going to be today, uh, it's, it's a story that if you've been following along in the book of Judges, one of the things we said in the very beginning is that this book and the experience of the judges and what Israel engages in, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And today is one more example of it. Our story begins in chapter 10, as we heard from our scripture reading this morning, with that familiar refrain in verse 6. The people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 6 and following, they tell us about how once again, after the death of a judge that God raised up to save his people, Israel turned away from God and started worshiping the gods of the people all around them. And in verses 6 through 7, there's a very detailed description for us of the gods that they went and they worshipped, or specifically the gods of the nations that they worshipped. There's actually a geographical description here, basically saying, listen, Israel embraced and worshipped the gods of the people to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. By the time you come to Judges chapter 10, Israel has at some point in its history now turned to one of the gods of the nations around them. And God does for them what he said he would do. He sends oppression upon them, this time in the form of a very specific nation, the Ammonites. And the Ammonites come and they oppress the people of God for 18 years. And as verse 10 says, look at verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you. Because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And so, as the cycle has done in the past, 
They turn to a foreign god, oppression comes, and then Israel calls out to God as we see here in verse 10. But something interesting happens. For only the second time in the book, look at how God responds. In fact, this is only the second time that God actually responds. Verse 11 says this. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, from the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Monites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Verse 14 God says to them, go, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Does this response from God surprise you a little bit? The people are doing what they're supposed to do. They're calling out to God. They're asking for deliverance. They've acknowledged that they've been serving the false gods, and yet God says... I'm not going to help you. In fact, he goes one step further. He says, you want help? Turn to those foreign gods that have, you've been worshiping and going after. See what help they will be to you. He rebukes them rather than restores them. When I was studying this week, I said to myself, wow, this feels a bit harsh. It feels a bit harsh. Maybe that God is going back on his word. So why does he do this? Why does he not respond to Israel when they call out to him? And I'm going to let you know that what we're going to see next is the answer. See, God is wanting to teach his people the difference between repentance and regret. Repentance and regret. This section is a section that teaches us and teaches the people of Israel the difference between repentance and regret. Now, we know that this is what God is doing here because of what happens next in the text. After they're rebuked by God for not turning, or after they're being rebuked by by God because of what they said, look at verse 15. The people don't take no for an answer. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please... Deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And then look, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. God's heart changes towards his people. It's letting us know right then and right there that this time he he hears them and he's seeking to respond. But you got to ask the question of the text. Why does God choose to intercede this time, but not the first time? And we find our answer when we look closely, church, at the two requests that Israel makes of the Lord. You see, there's one key difference between the two times that Israel calls out to God. The first time they call out to him, did you see that they acknowledge what they had done? They say, we've turned to other gods. And they know that that's one of the rules that God has, one of his commandments. You shall have no other God, what? Before me. And so they come to him and they say, 
we know that we've done wrong. We know that we've done wrong against you. But while they acknowledge that, church, there's not this deep change within their heart. They're displaying regret rather than ultimately, as we'll see in a second, repentance. Because the second time they call out to him, they acknowledge what they have done, but then they also accept the consequences for their action. Look at the verse again. We've sinned. We violated your command. Do to us whatever seems good to you. They don't say that the first time. They don't invite the consequences. They don't say we're getting what we deserved. But the second time they do. In their second response or request of God, they accept the consequences for their actions, and then they do what they didn't do the first time. They actively turn away from the false gods that they have been worshiping. They don't just say we did wrong, but they accept the consequences for it, and then they put their gods away. They didn't do that the first time. What's happening here? What, what we're seeing in Israel is that between their first request of God and their second request of God, that there's a change that's taken place. To them, the God who delivered them out of Egypt has become just simply one of the multitude of gods that exists. And when they're being oppressed... They go to him with the request to be delivered because they feel like, well, you're just like one of the other gods. You're punishing us for what we've been doing, and so, so we're going to own up to it. But it's not until the second request that we see genuine repentance taking place. You see, if you're taking notes this morning, here, here's what I've said. Regret is, is to just feel disappointment or sadness over failure. I've been caught. I, I don't like what's happening to me because of what I've done. That, that's what their first request, request is all about. It's, it's just a, it's this idea of regret. We're in trouble because we broke your rules. Now please help us get out of trouble. They want God for what he can do for him, but they don't really want God for who he truly is. They're sorry about the consequences. Yet, in their second request, we see this genuine repentance because they do three things as I said before, the repentance is first and foremost in ownership of the wrong committed. We have sinned. God, you call that sin. You say that that's wrong. You say that's in violation to who you are. We acknowledge that too. We don't hide from it, but we are fully acknowledging that we see what you see is wrong. The second thing that they do that displays repentance rather than regret is they say, we're going to accept the consequences. There's an acceptance of the consequences. Do to us what needs to be done. Not only are we calling sin, sin, not only are we calling wrongdoing, wrongdoing, but we're also saying it deserves the punishment. And so I'm not going to fight against it. It's, it's them coming and saying, listen, we don't make the rules, you make the rules. We don't designate what the punishment is. You designate what the punishment is. There's no negotiation with God. Do to us what needs to be done. They do ask for deliverance, though, don't they? They still say, but would you please deliver us? But then the most profound thing they do that demonstrates a genuine repentance is that there is a choosing to change behavior. 
They chucked their gods. The false gods that they had held on to after the first request, they're totally getting rid of. They're not letting those things be around them and in their lives anymore. Sadly, we're going to learn that doesn't last very long. But for now, it does. That's what repentance is. It's, it's owning the sin that one has done. It's, it's accepting the consequences. And it's looking and saying, regardless of the outcome here, Regardless of the punishment that is rightfully deserved, because I accept those consequences, I'm going to turn from that behavior. I'm going to turn from them. I'm going to choose to change. This is an illustration to us that exists within God's word of the difference between regret and genuine repentance. It's not coming to God and saying, God, we've done wrong. Will you deliver us? It's just full acknowledgement that they have gone against God and they're ready to deal with what will come. And we see that God sees it and he accepts it as such. In fact, it leads us to one of the first takeaways that I would say this shows us, and that is that God desires repentance and not simply regret. What God desires of us in our sin, when we fail to live up to his standards and his command, He's not looking for us just to feel sorry or disappointment over what we've done, but to own it as sin, to accept the consequences for actions, to recognize that our behavior needs to be different, and ultimately to call out to him for the forgiveness that he and he alone is able to give. There's a story that's told. Sometimes you come across these in history and you don't know if they're necessarily true. But King Frederick II, he's one of the kings of Prussia in the 18th century. It's told that he was visiting a prison in Berlin. And as he was visiting that prison in Berlin, the inmates, as he toured the prison, over and over again tried to call out to him to prove that they had been unjustly imprisoned. Every cell that he went by, everybody claimed innocence. But there was one man And when the king came to his cell, he sat quietly in the corner, didn't say anything, didn't proclaim his innocence, and it was so blatantly obvious to the king that there was something different about this man that he stopped and actually engaged this man. He called him over with his guards, and he asked the man, why are you here? The man looked at the king, and he said, armed robbery, your honor. The king asked, were you guilty? He said, yes, sir. I entirely deserved my punishment. The king then spoke to the guards and he said, immediately release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all the other innocent people in the prison. Yeah, I didn't see that coming, did you, right? The king in that story saw in this man a genuine understanding and ownership of the wrong that he had done, not trying to to diminish it. We see this in the scripture over and over again. When the psalmist cries out to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. This is a story here that shows us, God so kindly shows us, Here's what I desire, repentance, not just simply regret. 
But then the beautiful thing of this story is it shows us a theme that's not just in Judges, but is in the Bible from the beginning, and it's this. God forgives you when you repent. He's not one who withholds his forgiveness. He is not like us. Because when people wrong us, when they sin against us, when they do wrong in our eyes, we're prone to hold on to it. We're prone to to cling to it, to, to make them pay. But the story of the Bible all throughout is time and time again when God's people see their sin and repent of their sin, God comes with forgiveness. It's not to say, as we've said many times, that there aren't still consequences for our sin. But if we confess our sin to him, he is, not was, not will be, he is faithful and just to do what, church? Forgive us our sins. To the repentant sinner, God says, don't hide from me. Don't try to earn my forgiveness. Come, own your sin and your wrongdoing before me. And as you do that, as you come to me, I am a God who offers forgiveness in a covering for your sin. Because he's ultimately made the sacrifice necessary to forgive our sins through the beautiful covering blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we cling to, we cling to this truth. God forgives you when you repent. The story of Judges in chapter 10 shows us this. And so I just have to stop here just for a moment and say, if this is true, people, friends, if this is true, and it is, we see his heart there. He says, I became impatient for the suffering of my people. If this is true, then first to the Christian here today, is there any sin in your life that you feel regret over? And you are stewing in. You've done what you know God would not want you to do, even though you've been washed through the blood of Jesus Christ, even though you're a new creation. My question is for you. Are you like Israel in some way, shape, or form that you're just living with the regret of it, but have not yet confessed it, have not yet owned that sin, brought it to the Lord, and let yourself experience the forgiveness that he offers? It's why in our service every single Sunday, part of the design of our service is that we have that moment, that, that time of, of confession, because we want to be a people who live in the daily, never-ending, gracious forgiveness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. There is no sin so big that God does not forgive. There's no sin so big that you can't repent, face the consequences for, and yet still have his grace to help you walk through it. And so come to him. Receive that forgiveness. Don't hold on to it. And some of you here today have never even heard this message or known that God is a God who forgives. And I come to you and I say, today is the day. 
If anyone confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you need a Savior, then don't let today go by and leave this place and still be someone under guilt and condemnation because the truth of God's word says there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The book of Judges comes and it speaks this message to us. But then it goes to another place. After telling us about repentance and regret, we see God act in the next set of verses. You see, verse 17 tells us that the Ammonites were preparing for war against God's people. They were continuing on their oppression. And the question comes, God is impatient. He wants to see his people delivered, but who's going to deliver? In fact, verse 18 says the very thing. The Israelites ask the question. We don't have all the background, but there's a sense that they know that God is going to deliver them. They said, so who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so they're wondering, how's God going to deliver? Chapter 11 begins with these words. We're introduced to God's deliverer. God's deliverer is a man named Jephthah. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows, worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. In these verses, we're introduced to God's deliverer. The man that God will use to deliver his people is a man by the name of Jephthah. And we learn three things about Jephthah from these verses. First, he was the illegitimate son of a prostitute. Second, he was driven out of his home by his half-brothers. We don't know at what age, but at some age, his family rejected him. And after being kicked out of his family, he did what somebody with no family would do. He made a family of his own. He, he sought to sur survive as best he could. He became, make no mistake about this, church, an outlaw. He surrounded himself, or I should say, worthless fellows collected around Jephthah. Jephthah was a man who was involved, as best we could say, in organized crime in that day. He was the underworld boss, if you will, a complete outcast. But we're introduced to him because the story goes on, and I'm just going to summarize through much of this. The Ammonites made war against the Israelites, and, and the Israelites didn't have any leader, and so they only knew of one man who had the street cred to potentially be a warrior for them, the guy that they had kicked out. And so they go to Jephthah, and they say, will you be our leader and fight against the Ammonites? And in verse 7, Jephthah listens to the people who had kicked him out of his own home and said, did you not hate me, verse 7, and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? He's a little hesitant to join his forces with these people who had not treated him well. Ultimately, though, the people say, no, 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 we, we really want you to be our leader. Jephthah, we need you. And so he tests them in verse 9. He says, fine, fine. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives me 
gives them over to me, he says, I will be your head. Now, you got to pay attention to what's being said there. They asked him to fight against the Ammonites. He said, great, I'll fight against the Ammonites, but I want to be your leader. I want to take over. I want to be your head. I don't just want to be the guy who delivers you. I want to rule over you. He tests them, and look at how they respond. Verse 10, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So they agree. They agree to his demands, to his negotiations. He becomes their leader. And the first thing that he does, the text tells us, you anticipate that he is going to go out and he's going to meet the Ammonites with his army. You anticipate that he's going to raise up an army to fight against the Ammonites. And I bet you that's what they were expecting. But the first thing he does in verse 12 is this. It says that Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me? What do you have against me that you've come out to fight against my land? He pursues diplomacy over violence to resolve the conflict. He's an organized crime boss. I'm sure they were thinking he's going to bring the heavies against the Ammonites. Instead, he tries to negotiate with them. Verse 13, the Ammonites, they respond and they answer. They said, here's why we're fighting you. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully. The king says, this is why we come up against you. You're in my land, and I want my land back. Now you think, again, that Jephthah would say, all right, negotiation's done. We're going to fight you now. Let's bring it. He doesn't do that. The next number of verses, he goes back once again with the messenger. I'm not going to read the entirety of this text. I'm just going to tell you what he does. He goes back to the king of the Ammonites, and he lays forth a threefold argument to tell him why he's wrong. He gives a historical argument, he gives a theological argument, and he gives a legal argument, trying to convince the king of the Ammonites, listen, this was never your land to begin with. Ultimately, his historical, theological, and legal arguments fall on deaf ears. And the king says, tough luck, I still want my land back. And so it's time for them to go to war. Now, something that's interesting, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Just briefly, Jephthah was known as a crime boss, as a fighter. Yet, he didn't immediately engage in warfare with the king of the Ammonites. This, this isn't like a super spiritual thing I'm going to say here, but it just stood out to me from the text. Don't judge a book by its cover. There's no doubt that the Israelites went after Jephthah because of his street cred and what they thought he would do for them, yet he shows them that he's so much more than just a fighter. He tries to negotiate. He shows a deeper level of his ability to handle a conflict. And I was just reading it this week, and I thought, man, how many times do I do that? Do I think of somebody who's just one-dimensional? As I think of them as that they're only good for a certain thing, and they're not capable of much more? Jephthah shows, he's like, I'm just not a fighter. There's more to me than meets the eye. But when that fails, they go to war. And verse 29 says this, 
Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. He's ready to fight. He's ready with his army. And there's this really profound announcement of good news that verse 29 says. Look at the very first part of the verse. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Whenever you see that in the book of Judges, and we've seen it numerous times, that is such good news for the Israelites and really bad news for whoever it is that they're dealing with at the time. God was with him. Victory was coming. And so Jephthah gathered his army and fought the Ammonites, and they won. Yes, but something happens first. Look at verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. And I will offer that thing which comes out of my house up for a burnt offering. Right here, we find the vow. The word of God has just told us that God is with Jephthah. Yet Jephthah, for some reason, before he goes to battle, the Lord's already on his side, stops. And he makes a vow to God. Let me just break down this vow so we're really clear on what he does. Jephthah clearly says, God, if you do this, I will do this for you. Are we clear on that? Like that's the foundation of what he does. He says, God, if, if you help me beat the Ammonites, I'm going to do this for you. Now, what does he say he's going to do for God? Well, he comes and he says, that he will offer up to God as a burnt offering the first thing that greets him out his front door when he comes back from having won the battle. Let that sink in for just a moment. He says, God, I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering. I will kill, light on fire, the first thing that walks through the door to greet me after my victory. Now, some people have tried to tone this down a little bit to say Jephthah is anticipating that this is an animal sacrifice that he's promising to God. Like a goat or a sheep or, I don't know, Fido is going to come through the door when he makes it home. You just can't simply read the text that way. First and foremost, that you didn't have house pet type animals. They didn't think about animals like we think about animals, especially in Valley Center, as being like part of our family, right? They didn't have the dog that was there wagging its tail, welcoming you home. Let's be abundantly clear what the vow is all about. He is vowing here a human sacrifice to earn God's favor. He has come to God and said, God, you let me win, and I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes through my door, i.e., 
whatever member of my household comes to greet me, I will offer up to you. Now, this begs a huge question. Why would Jephthah make this vow? Are you wondering that right now? What is going on here? Is he really offering up a member of his home as a burnt offering to the Lord? Why would he do this? The answer is simple. Simple. Jephthah did not know his God or his word. And when I mean that, I'm not to say that he didn't have an idea of God. He knew that there was a God. He's, he's praying to him. He's, he's talking to him. He's making a vow to him. He knows the history of Israel because he recounts it in the verses earlier to the king of the Ammonites. But he doesn't really know God for who he truly is, and he really doesn't know God's word. And the reason why I say he doesn't know God's word is because it is abundantly clear. And he would have had access to this. Deuteronomy 12.31 says that human sacrifice is detestable to the Lord. It is something that he hates. God's word is clear. You don't offer up a human sacrifice to God. And the reason why I say he doesn't know God, that is who he really is and what his character is really like, is because the vow he makes is the kind of vow and the kind of sacrifice that the pagan worshipers all around him used in the interaction with their gods. Part of the horrendous nature of when we read that the Israelites practiced and worshipped the gods of the nations around them was that the Canaanite people, one of the ways that they worshipped their gods to show their gods their utter devotion to them, to plead and to negotiate with their God for things just as he's doing here would be to offer human sacrifices. And so what's Jephthah revealing to us? He's revealing to us, church, that he doesn't truly know the character and the nature of the God who delivered them out of Egypt, who gave them the law, who established them in the land. He thinks that the God that he's calling out to is just like all those other gods who desires that if you do something for him, he is obligated to repay you. Church, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not a God that comes and says, if you do these things for me, I will do these things for, for you. But this was a man who had so embraced the culture and the worship of the gods around him that he didn't understand God's grace. He didn't understand how his God truly works. And so he felt like the only way that I can be successful is if I negotiate with God, if I manipulate him, if I make him do something for me because of what I'm going to do for him. He did not know his God and he did not know his word. His actions are understandable. I want you to know that. Like, we can look at Jephthah and say, how could he do this? Because it was what was happening in the culture around him. And he had just adapted the culture into his practices and the worship of his, of his God. I think there's just a little warning in there. Time doesn't permit me to say that's something that we can do too. And so he, he does what he does here. It's understandable in one sense, but it's no the less horrific. And what comes next in the story, despite the horrific nature of his vow, verses 32 through 33 record for us that Jephthah 
and Israel are victorious in battle over the Ammonites. We move on to the section of the story that I call From Triumph to Tragedy. Verses 32 and 33 record that God gives them victory. His hand was already upon Jephthah. And so Jephthah, he wins. Israel's delivered. Their oppressors are done away with. And he returns home. And verse 34 says, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourine and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. In a split second, Jephthah's triumph moves into the category of tragedy. There's no doubt in my mind that the news of Jephthah's victory had reached his home. And all who were there were eager to celebrate the victory. And who would be more eager to rush out and to celebrate the victory than his daughter, his only daughter, his only child. Did you see how the text makes it abundantly clear to him? This is the only child that he has. It's setting us up. It's letting us see the depths of, of what's about to happen and the tragedy that's going to unfold. And we can anticipate what comes next. Look at verse 35. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me for I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I can't take back my vow. In a split second, the full weight of what has happened hits both Jephthah and no doubt his daughter as well. And church, Jephthah's response here to seeing his daughter is quite revealing. As a, as a father with three daughters, the idea that because of one of my actions might cost the life of one of my daughters would be a burden beyond anything I could bear. And so I can sympathize here with Jephthah and his, and his heartache and what that would be like for a parent. But my sympathy for Jephthah is slightly diminished by what he says. Did you pick it up? Did, did you see it? Listen to it again. Verse 35, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of my great grief. Who is he shifting? Who is he shifting his pain upon? His daughter. It's, it's showing us here that there's some, there's some flaws in Jephthah's character and, and his theology for sure. What's remarkable is the response of his daughter, verse 36. I, just, I want you to see this. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. In comparison to Jephthah, listen to this daughter. You've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done to me. She doesn't negotiate. She doesn't argue. She doesn't say, please stop this from, from happening. 
No, she tells her father to go forward with it. The only thing that she asks is at the end there, leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. Some people have tried to, to say that Jephthah was offering something else with his daughter and that he really wasn't going to kill her, that that wasn't the idea. No, she knows exactly what it is. She says, let me have a time of mourning for two months because she says, listen, I will never have a husband. I will never be married. I'll never bear children. My life is going to come to an end. She doesn't stop her father, and guess what? This is unbelievable. Jephthah doesn't try and find a way out of his vow. Look at verse 38 all the way to the end. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, and she and her companions, and she wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months... She returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Some people look at that and they say, well, he really didn't offer up as a burnt sacrifice. He, 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 didn't, he didn't kill her. He did something else. I think the text intentionally withholds the graphic details of this, but it makes abundantly clear that that's what he did because his vow was what? I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house. And his daughter was the first thing that came out of his house. And it says he fulfilled the vow. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, Four days in the year. I told you at the start, the story of the judges and their actions and what they engage in, it just continues to spiral. And we look at this story and, and, and we say, why did, he, why did he do this? Why did he go through with it? I come to you again and say, he did what he did here at the end because he did not really know his God and know his word. And you know what makes this story so much more tragic? Is if he really just simply knew God's word, he would have known Leviticus 5. It was the last time we went there. Leviticus 5 says this in verse 4. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sins. God, the gracious God, had already provided for people like Jephthah in his word a means for him to not fulfill his oath by offering up a sacrifice to God. In fact, God is so gracious that in Leviticus, it goes on to say, if you can't afford a goat, you can afford a pigeon, doves, you can offer those things up. And if you can't do that, then the priest will make a sacrifice on your behalf that you can't make. Like God understood that situations like this would, would come. Yet sadly, Jephthah truly didn't know his God and know his word. And so what do we take away from this last part of the story as, as we look at Jephthah's life? Like what is God wanting to, to then speak to us? Two things quickly in closing. The first is this. The fact that God doesn't intercede and keep him from fulfilling this vow 
lets us know that there are consequences for failing to know God and his word. There are consequences for failing to know God and his word. God, in the full revelation of who he is, his grace, his forgiveness, the way that we should walk, he says, I've made it known to you. I've made it known to you. It was available to Jephthah, but in not knowing it, in not knowing his God, and not walking with him, he went forward with a vow that he did not have to keep, and he experienced devastating consequences in his life, and not just him, his poor daughter. And this should be a testimony to you and I today, we who are so fortunate to have the revelation of God's word and the revelation of Jesus Christ, to come to him, to cling to him, to desire to know his word because he says that his word, it's a light for our path. It reveals to us the way that we should go. It points us in the truth. And Jephthah shows us failure to know God and his word. The consequences can be devastating. But I'm not going to end just right there. Because the story also shows us this. It shows us that God relates to us through grace and not merit. He relates to us through grace and not merit. Well, why do I say that he relates to us through grace and not merit? It's because Jephthah thought that God relates to us through our good works, not through his grace. That's why he did what he did, and God is wanting to use this story to say, look to me as a God who doesn't need you to make vows to me, who doesn't need you to do good deeds so that I might save and rescue you. My offer of salvation, my grace is always supplied through Jesus Christ. Just turn to me, know me, confess me as Savior and Lord, and that's where the grace is found. The story of the Bible, the story of Christianity, the message we proclaim is our God comes to us by his grace and not through our good works. Amen? Look at Jephthah and say, may it never be true of me, may it never be true of you, that we so confuse who our God is and what he's done that we feel like we must earn his favor through our good works. Chances are you're not going to sacrifice a child. <laughs> but there are other things that you might look to do that will be a weight and a bind upon you. And he comes and he says, any good work that you think that you could do, my son has already accomplished for you. Praise God for his grace. Amen, let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, and this morning, Lord, we, we look at a story like Jephthah and his daughter, and, and Father, it's just, it's not pretty, it's uncomfortable, but Lord, in it, you speak to us. You speak to us that even in those dark places and even in those stories, Lord, where, where failure is so prominent, that you want us to know who you truly are. You want us to see how, Lord, you are quick to offer forgiveness to the repentant sinner, how to provide your, your grace in abundance. Lord, the fact that you were with Jephthah before he even made his vow, Lord, is just one more sign to us. Lord, before any of us in this room was ever born, you already provided the Savior for us that our sins would require and so in that, we take great comfort and joy and pray, Lord, that if there is any here who have not yet entered into that grace, but Lord, that they would today turn and confess Christ as Savior and Lord. And so to you be the glory and the praise and the honor both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.